and it is that time again for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett until six tonight. Today, the first part of a talk by Professor Noam Chomsky in Adelaide recently. What happened in Glasgow with Nick McClellan? A book review, The Beauty of Her Face with Claudia Hiles. Another viewpoint on the deeds of Colin Powell with Kathy Kelly. But first, he's at it again, Mr Kevin Healy. He's had another week. A week, Jane, listener, when big supremo Scuttle Ben Morlash's son, a.k.a. Scummo, went electioneering, able to boast yet another major success the true blue Aussie way. Number one in the world, first in the world, in the worst climate change if there is such a thing policy. It takes a lot of work, the true blue Aussie way, to win the race to run last in the world, he boasted. The true blue Aussie can do capitalism way. And true blue Aussie can do capitalism has contributed to us winning this award. An invaluable contribution. Unfortunately, with that, the electioneering took a backward step, or more correctly, put the wheels into reverse, by destroying our Troubler Wazzy weekends, offering all this money to the private sector to install electric car recharging plants all over the country. And although the Socialist Party is scoffing that this has pinched the very policy scuttle them attacked them for... There is a major difference the socialists are ignoring. Scuttle them is offering nothing to encourage electric car take-up, make them more affordable and available, for instance, and nothing to limit the pollution belching from the other 97 or whatever percent of trucks and cars as they race or more likely slowly traffic jam their way past the recharges. On a positive, getting its tactics and principles together, the Socialist Party came up with a real brainwave to counter government attempts to wedge it, as they say, over including carbon capture and storage, the burying your head in the sand solution, as part of a lower emissions fund to hand even more money to the private sector. A brilliant solution under the headline, Socialist Party could sidestep carbon capture when by well, obviously, standing up for its principles and telling the government to stick burying in your head in the sand where it belongs. Well, no, no, not quite. See, the too-clever-by-half government reckons it's got the socialist wedge between their opposition to carbon sequestration, as burying your head in the sand is called, and being seen to oppose other initiatives. But the socialists are too smart to fall for that. Instead of opposing carbon capture and storage, they will support carbon capture and storage. Told you it was brilliant. Yet another courageous socialist principle tactic. Uh, that way, the government can't attack our policy. Spokesperson Chris Bow and the Capitol looked very smug. Uh, that is the policy you don't have anyway. Exactly, it's safer that way. And Chris, you don't think the government might just slightly be open to attack on its policy, which is also your non-policy, which won us the worst in the world award? Better safe than sorry. This way we can't be attacked for not supporting this remarkable national achievement. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi did say direct quote, I am sick of the government's hypocrisy on climate change. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that one in without comment. No hypocrisy though with our filthy riches to the filthy rich men, twitty for rich and richer. 
For the record, Gina Nohart is the filthiest rich of all true blue Aussie can-do capitalists currently campaigning for more corporate welfare for the resource and pastoral industries, which by sheer coincidence happened to be the source of her filthy, filthy rich, but number one male, great can-do capitalist Twitty, who is touring the world in his new role as the world's number one greenie, saving the planet through green hydrogen with no thought for the billions he expects to profit from green hydrogen whenever he can get it going. And given Twitty is so into preaching his credentials to the world, just thought we might mention that last year his company Fortescue for Profits blew the pollution from 700 million litres of diesel fuel, real figure, 700 million litres, into the atmosphere he reckons he wants to save almost a 10% increase on the previous year, and as thanks on behalf of the environment, received $300 million courtesy of the taxpayer in fuel tax credit. Hope those corporate handouts are coming from the Clean Energy Fund. That, that would make greener than green Twitty feel even better holding out his hand. Although he's clearly thinking of others and not himself, as he opposes attempts by environmentalists to slash fuel tax credits altogether. Obviously environmentalists who are not as green as Twitty is green. And of course we know the Twitty for rich and richer family made its original fortune from huge pastoral interests where doubtless they would have employed the original owners of those vast, vast tracts of land and provided them with a fair day's tobacco or maybe beads or mirrors or, or smallpox. Thus, Twitty has also been a champion of Indigenous interests, telling us how much he does to make Indigenous lives that little bit better. That must explain why Fortescue for Profits is opposing changes to Aboriginal heritage laws that would give traditional owners a limited right to oppose projects planned for their land, like Twitty's proposed West Pilbara Fines Iron Ore project affecting the PKKP people, the very same traditional owners who saw their Duke and Gorge sacred sites blasted into extinction by Rio Tato the planet. We do support the Western True Blue Aussie government retaining responsibility for the protection of Aboriginal cultural heritage for the scoop of profits submitted. That captures Twitty's genuine concern for Indigenous people, as that would mean the PKKP people could carry on as much as they like over his West Pilbara Fines project, but have absolutely no rights to do anything about it. As I said, there's no hypocrisy with good old Twitty, like his belief that resource companies have the right to explore and extract on other people's land, like on those selfish PKKP people's land, except when it's on his family's pastoral estates, as he took another mining company to the High Court to prevent it exploring on his land and won. A man so devoted to consistency and green, green, green would have applauded Indonesia in other people's business for its consistency, as Indonesia in, home to a third of the world's rainforests, signed a deforestation agreement in Glasgow, a committee which a commitment which lasted exactly two days. The agreement is at odds with our development plans and must be fine-tuned, Environment Minister Siti Nabaya Barker said, forcing Indonesia in to reach zero forest deforestation in 2030 is clearly inappropriate and unfair. The massive development of this era must not stop in the name of carbon emissions or in the name of deforestation.
Powell, she's made that pretty clear. Perhaps Twitty could build a green hydrogen plant where the forest used to be and balance the equation. Or even better, a great opportunity for the true blue Aussie way can do capitalism as Indonesia in chainsaws its forests, our can-do lot could plant a tree in Indonesia in to offset the coal and other fossils we're refusing to reduce. Win-win. And then when they get round to it in Indonesia in and they could chop down the tree and then we could plant another tree, it's a great initiative. Although, thinking about that, when it comes to doing something about climate change, if there is such a thing, and not beating the world as the worst in addressing the issue, and thinking about ScoMo's deeply thought-through assertion that climate change, if there is, can be solved by true blue Aussie can-do capitalism, does the phrase can't do capitalism spring to mind, listener? It certainly can do and keeps doing in creating the problem. Bit of bad luck for the government's latest addition to the High Court bench, Simon Stewart of the Right, who specialised in tax law before his appointment to the Federal Court bench three years ago, as his High Court colleagues have thrown out on appeal three of his Federal Court decisions over tax matters, including one involving a Labor hire ripper offer described as a Labor hire magnate who kept setting up Phoenix companies to avoid worker entitlements and the tax department, in which his honour found for the Phoenix Ripper offer against the tax department seeking a mere 163 mil in unpaid taxes. However, he will prove an invaluable addition to the bench as... Well, we recall last year we commented on then-Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, quite properly most upset when the High Court ruled he couldn't deport Indigenous True Blue Aussies, one born in PNG, the other New Zealand, but living in True Blue Aussies since they were babies. As if the first people of this country have a legal right to live here under British law. Well, the question is set to return to the High Court, and one legal journal suggested those outraged by the earlier decision nominated Simon because he would not agree with such nonsense. So let's hope he does the right thing by Constable Duffer and others fighting to preserve us from these indigenous, vexatious litigants. One federal court is on a weekend praise upheld that most precious of rights, the right of a worker not to join a union. Interesting how the law supports you if you don't join a union and fails to support you if you do. Anyway, he ordered a company to pay 67 grand to a bloke called John, poor John, who did nothing but defend his right as the company threatened to cut his wages if he did not join the evil CFMEU. Totally reprehensible, his honour exploded. Among the worst examples of coercion, dear me although maybe the cut was back to the wages he would have received, but for the union's campaigns over the years. But then the right not to join also makes illegal a union's non-right to seek fees from good principled people like John for benefits it wins for its members, and illegal to withhold those benefits from those exerting their very important right not to pay their fees and join the union. Congratulations to his honour for upholding these important human rights. Finally, a former New South Wales State Minister and caring business class party treasurer, bloke called Michael Yabsley, wrote a piece urging former big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull to stop attacking the conspirator who stabbed him in the back. Malcolm, we can find fault with the more lash son leadership just as we could find fault with the Tun of Bull leadership. 
but Morlash son is a good person and you know it. Good point, Michael. We all know it. Well, I'm not sure Malcolm does, but we do. Like the French big supremo, we don't think, we know. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. I'm reading from the introduction to a recent Zoom meeting. Each year, Australian Friends of Palestine Association prevents a guest speaker who challenges us to take a different view or see new possibilities for change. This year is no different. We are honoured to invite you to a personal conversation with Noam Chomsky, where he will offer his latest reflections on Palestine. Dr Sham Shahin immediate past chair of AFOCA, speaks with Chomsky, renowned political philosopher and one of the most influential thinkers of our time. His work has transformed the field of linguistics and influenced cognitive science, philosophy, psychology, computer science, mathematics, childhood education and anthropology. Chomsky has long been a leading voice in advocating for human rights and for the Palestinian people. Dr Shahin began by pointing out that in his previous lecture in Adelaide on the 5th of November 2011, Chomsky introduced the concept of unpeopled. And he asked him if 10 years later, has anything changed in the fundamental drives of the Palestine-Israeli conflict? I should add that I am not the originator of the term, Orwell used it in a slightly different sense. And then the very fine young British diplomatic historian, Mark Curtis, used unpeople in the sense that I borrowed it, namely the people who don't matter. Nothing's changed. We've seen it very dramatically in the last few days, in fact. So take uh, the main headlines in the last few days, Afghanistan. President Trump in February 2020 decided that for his own purposes, to take credit for, he would withdraw the troops from Afghanistan, would improve his standing at home. He made the worst possible decision, totally paid zero attention to the concerns of Afghans. He basically told the Taliban we're going to leave on May 
2021, and then you're free to do anything you want. Oh, just don't kill Americans, that's all. Anything you want to do the Afghans, fine with us. Also timed it at the worst possible moment, right for Afghans, namely at the beginning of the, uh, the killing season, the fighting season. So there's no time for any preparations or anything else. If you want to learn something about the world, you have to look at the reaction of the Republican Party. It's a major political organization. May very well take power next year. Their reaction was very interesting. They, of course, grovel at Trump's feet. Their main leaders, their highest goal in life is to shine his shoes and have him say they him say something nice about him. So they hailed the historic Trump withdrawal agreement, thought it was marvelous, until about a month ago when they suddenly excised it from their web page so that they could launch into an attack on Biden and even call for his impeachment because he pursued an improved version of Trump's withdrawal plan. He at least delayed it for a few months, made it somewhat better. Totally shameless, absolute beyond cynicism. They have ceased, long ceased, to become a political organization in anything like the sense of parliamentary politics. And this happens to be happening in the most important country in the world, the one that the Quad follows, and it's a major political organization, probably will soon take power again. That's worth paying attention to. So the Afghans are unpeople, just like the Palestinians, or like anyone with no power. You don't have any power, too bad, they'll kick you in the face. It's more, I mean, Trump, who's a sociopath, uh, brought it kind of to an unusual limit. He kind of gloried in it. Shithole countries, uh, we don't care about you and so on. But the more respectable parts of the political class behave exactly the same way. So take the Palestinians again. Uh, Trump, <laughs> I mean, I can't even describe what he did. He told Israel, do whatever you like. Take the Golan Heights, violating Security Council orders. Take the vastly expanded Jerusalem, violating Security Council orders. Do whatever you feel like in Gaza uh, and in the West Bank. Just take it over. We authorize you to do anything you feel like. And then he didn't stop with that. He proceeded beyond to acts of pure sadism, like cutting the lifeline that allows the Gazans in their prison to barely survive, the UNRWA lifeline, withdrawing the minimal aid that was given to Palestinians for things like hospitals. And he explained why he was doing it. He said, you didn't treat me nicely. When I kicked you in the face, you didn't show enough gratitude. So I'm therefore going to take everything away from you, even the lifeline. Biden pretty much took over his policies, but he dropped the pure sadism, the gratuitous sadism. So that's basically the difference between the two parties. Follow the same policies, but in the case of the Democrats, without gratuitous sociopathic sadism. That's the most important country in the world.
So yes, the Palestinians are unpeople to the political class, but not to the population generally. And that may prove to be important. So nothing much seems to have changed, which seems incredibly confronting. With respect uh, of the two-state solution, Professor Chomsky, with the prospect of a two-state solution almost impossible, or if at all a phrase even more impossible, is a one-state solution becoming more possible or is it equally impossible in your view? This is the way the options are usually presented for more years than I can remember. I've been trying to argue that it's a misrepresentation of the situation. There are three options, not two. One is the two-state settlement that's been a long-standing international consensus since the mid-1970s. Uh, the second is the idea of one state. I'll come back to that. The third is the actual real-life option, greater Israel. The system, the structure that has been developed systematically for 50 years, quietly, step by step, essentially, by now it includes taking over the Golan Heights with U.S. authorization in violation of Security Council orders, uh, retaining Gaza as a prison and a punching bag for the Israeli army. And in the West Bank, Israel takes over everything it wants, everything of value. The Jordan Valley, third of the country, most of the viable agricultural land, hugely expanded Jerusalem, about five times the size it ever was, taking in Palestinian villages, towns to the east of Jerusalem, Maal Dumim, constructed mostly in the Clinton years, uh, passage to it, E1, uh, another town further to the north, uh, Ariel, rather large town. Uh, all of these essentially bisect or trisect by now Palestinian territory, not Nablus, not Tulkor. Israel doesn't want Palestinians. So it leaves out the Greater Israel Project, leaves out the Palestinian population concentrations. That's because of what's called the demographic problem. Too many non-Jews in a Jewish state can't allow that, crucially. So leave out the Palestinian population concentrations. There are, of course, Palestinian villages left in the areas that Israel's taking over. They are confined into closed enclaves. Surround, there's about 165 of them now, surrounded by Israeli forces, uh, which, if they're in a good mood, might let them go out to their fields or olive groves, subject to constant attack by terrorist settlers who are watched by the ID, IDF, the army, as they go in and smash up Palestinian homes, beat people up, kill them if they feel like it. IDF watches, it's got a mission to protect settlers. And in Hebron, if you visit a small number of Jewish settlers, big IDF contingent, large population of Palestinians, basically imprisoned. If the settlers decide they want to 
overturn a vegetable stand or beat up some Palestinian or throw stones at kids walking to school, Palestinian kids. The IDF will watch and make sure that no one harms the settlers. That's greater Israel. That's what's being implemented. As long as the greater Israel project remains alive, Israel will never even dream of any of the other two alternatives. Why does the greater Israel project remain alive? Because the US supports it and other countries like Australia or Europe are too cowardly to object when the Godfather makes a pronouncement. So Europe actually does play a role when uh, Israel decides to smash up the Gaza Strip, what they call mowing the lawn, Europe sends funds to help people rebuild, to be destroyed the next time Israel plays its game. So Israel destroys, Europe refunds, the United States authorizes, others just watch. Well, that's the actual situation to talk about options without including the real option is meaningless. It just basically provides tacit support for the Israeli Greater Israel Project. Now, what about one state? If by one state, we mean a state in which Palestinians have anything remotely like equal rights, including the right to vote, then forget it. It'll never happen. Israel will never accept it. It's not going to accept going out of existence, which is what that means, and turning into a Palestinian state. They would resort, if there's actually no international support for that, but if it ever developed, Israel would resort to its ultimate weapons, nuclear weapons, to prevent it. So that is not an option. It's not a realistic option. You can imagine a one-state settlement in which Israel basically takes over everything as it in effect sort of does in terms of actions and allows Palestinians some limited rights. So maybe you can elect your own mayor or something like that, as long as it doesn't turn into an authentic one state. That idea is bandied about, you could argue, maybe it's the best alternative, I don't think so. But if we're talking about one state, we have to face reality. The only possibility for one for an auth one state is one in which Palestinians are have essentially no rights. I mean, the kind of rights that black Africans had on the vantage stands, they could elect their own officers too. So that's one state. Is a two state settlement possible? I think so. We have to recognize the power of the global godfather. If the United States decides to authorize two states, Israel will have to obey. In the 1970s, Israel made a fateful decision. I go into the details, but the decision in effect was to prefer expansion to security. There were options, clear options, for a two-state settlement in the mid-1970s. It was a UN Security Council resolution supported by the major Arab states, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, tacitly supported by the PLO, not openly, called for 
two-state settlement on the international border with, and I'll quoting it, guarantees for the right to exist of each state in secure and recognized borders. Israel was furious. They refused to attend the session. Prime Minister Rabin, the dove, announced that there will never be any negotiations with Palestinians. There will never be a Palestinian state. Forget it. Uh, Chaim Herzog, later president, went even further. He's supposed to be another dove. He raved on about how the resolution was initiated by the PLO, which of course it wasn't, in order to destroy Israel. So we can't even think about it. That was Israel's position all the way through 1988. And the effect of that was very clear. It means we expand at that point. They wanted to, this is the labor government, incidentally. They wanted to expand into the Sinai, the Egyptian Sinai. Uh, later, they abandoned that because it was hopeless. But uh, they wanted no limits on us developing the Greater Israel Project. One of the leading figures was Shimon Peres, who was initiated the settlements deep inside the West Bank, what Israel calls Judah and Samaria. In fact, in Paris's last press conference, 1996, when he left office, he said firmly, there will never be a Palestinian state. Well, that's the extreme doves. 1987, the Palestinians did come out with a declaration, Palestinian National Council, authorizing a two-state settlement. You could argue about the terms, but at least they said, yes, we recognize Israel. There should be two states. Israel, of course, never responded, but it uh, did give an indirect response. This was a coalition government. Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir came out with a declaration saying there will never be an additional Palestinian state, additional Palestinian state. In other words, we decree that Jordan is a Palestinian state. They may think otherwise, but they're just more unpeople. So Jordan already is a Palestinian state. There will never be another one. The outcome for the West Bank will be settled according to the guidelines of the Israeli government. That was 1988. 1989, James Baker, Secretary of State for George Bush I, effectively authorized it in what's called the Baker Plan. Well, things have changed since then to some extent, but the crucial point is that when Israel decided to abandon security and move and dedicate itself to expansion, they became totally reliant on the United States. They cannot persist in their policies without the US defending them. And if you look at the US record, at the UN, international organizations, you see this happening all the time. So take, say, Obama. Obama was the most supportive of Israel of any president up to Trump. He's the first US president who made no demands on Israel. The others all did, and of course, Israel had to obey as it must. Trump, of course, was worse. Notice that Obama in Israel is, called, is considered an enemy of Israel. 
That's because Israel had moved so far to the right that the most supportive president was considered an enemy. It's an important point. If the United States decides that it will support an authentic Palestinian state, Israel has no choice but to agree. They've cut off their other choices. That's part of the decision to separate it to become an international pariah and rely on the United States for support. Can that happen? I think it might. I don't think it's out of the question. No, for those that keep questioning the broad support that the United States provides to Israel, can you perhaps share your views as to the background for this support? First of all, it wasn't always true. Up till 1967, the US had cordial relations with Israel, but it wasn't anything like what followed. In fact, under Eisenhower, the United States simply ordered Israel to evacuate the Sinai way against their wishes. That was a bitter blow to Ben-Gurion, but the United States declared it, we can't do anything. So they immediately withdrew. Under Kennedy, things were mixed. But uh, when 1967 came along, totally changed. That's when US support for Israel became enormous, broke all bounds. And there were reasons for that. It's not the Israeli lobby. It's not that Jews suddenly became more interested in Israel. It's that Israel performed a major service to the United States. There was a conflict, actually an actual war going on between Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the main pillar of radical Islamic fundamentalism. Nasser was supporting secular nationalism. Britain, when it ran the region, almost always supported radical Islam against secular nationalism. US followed the same pattern, and for good reasons. A radical Islam may carry out horrible actions against women, may have horrible human rights abuses, may carry out terror, but at least they're not going to disrupt the imperial system. They'll go along with it. Egypt, on the other hand, and secular nationalism might start a movement towards democratic. He wasn't a democrat, it was a dictatorship, but secular nationalism with develop and a developmental state might spread throughout the region and really dissolve the imperial system. So secular nationalism is much more dangerous. Israel moved in in 67, smashed up secular nationalism, supported Saudi Arabia, an enormous gift. Saudi Arabia essentially won the war in the Sinai. It had been before the, the major country that the US wants to support in the region has all the oil. But then it became a real base. And Israel at that point became basically a base for American power. Funding for Israel went up enormously. It had a cultural effect. It's in 1967 that you suddenly see concern about the Holocaust. It's an interesting fact. In the late 1940s, during the war, it was possible to bring in Jewish refugees, but that was barred by the racist immigration laws. 1924, the US passed immigration laws, basically banning Jews and Italians. And that lasted right through the war. 
so very few Jews could get in. After the war, late 40s, there were plenty of Jews languishing in concentration camps. They weren't death camps, but the circumstances hadn't much changed. They didn't come to the United States. The US barely allowed a small trickle in. They were compelled to go to Palestine by the Zionists who took over the camps and by the United States, which blocked their entry. So did most other countries. That continued through the 50s. Very little interest in the Holocaust when uh, nothing much happened. In 1967, everything changed. Holocaust museums in every town in the country, Holocaust courses in the schools. I should say that when Raul Hilberg, the main historian of the Holocaust, the most respected historian, he wrote his great book on extermination of the Jews in 1958, could barely get it published, it was suppressed. Nobody, we don't want to hear those old stories, you know about Jews dying, six million Jews dying. It's not our interest. 67, it became everybody's interest. Uh, Elie Wiesel became a great hero and so on. Much better novels on the Holocaust in earlier years, like Schwartz, never mentioned. But 67 changed everything. And the fundamental reason is the difference in relations between the US and Israel. 1970, it increased. 1970, you may recall, uh, Jordan was crushing the Palestinians in Jordan. It looked briefly as if Syria might intervene to protect Palestinians who were being slaughtered. U.S. didn't want that, but its hands were tied. 1970, the U.S. was up to its neck in the Indochina War. Country was falling apart with protests. They couldn't do anything. So they called on Israel. Israel mobilized its forces, threatened Syria. Syria withdrew. Slaughter could continue. U.S. military aid, Israel quadrupled. Continues like that. It's now to the point where Israel is fundamentally a base for U.S. power in the region. And we'll hear the final part of Professor Noam Chomsky's address in Adelaide on the program next week. Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiyah to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen. We need to nurture it. 
We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. There can be no doubt that the island states of the Pacific are at the forefront of the climate crisis. At the recent COP26 meeting in Glasgow, only four were represented, but I believe the thoughts of all Pacific Islanders were on those talks. At the weekend, I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. One of the real problems for the Pacific is that to travel halfway around the world to Glasgow in the middle of a pandemic is incredibly difficult. You know, one of the big features of the global pandemic is the way it's disrupted airline schedules um, and many national airlines have had to cancel flights and, and so on. Also, when you think about a small country like Tuvalu uh, in this Polynesian nation in the centre of the Pacific, the Tuvalu delegation had to transit through several stops, through Nandi and Fiji, through Australia, through Dubai and so on, all the way to get to, to Glasgow. And so many Pacific leaders, many Pacific delegations found it incredibly difficult to get to Scotland this year because of um, the pandemic. There's also a fear for a number of Pacific countries about bringing back COVID. Um, a number of Pacific Island states are still largely COVID-free. They have had no cases or just a few at the border. And so, you know, there's a, a real problem. This year, Pacific delegations tried a number of innovative ways to uh, um, raise their concerns and their issues. For example, Simon Coffey, who's the Foreign Affairs Minister of Tuvalu, gave an online virtual address to COP rather than travelling all the way to Glasgow to do it. But uh, people may have seen the, the pictures on social media. He stood in the ocean with a lectern to give the address and it was broadcast live in Glasgow with him standing in the ocean uh, with water up to his uh, knees. Sort of symbolic of the, the real challenge that low-lying atoll nations like Tuvalu were facing in the face of a massive push by the fossil fuel industry to hang on uh, to their stranded assets. Uh, and you see countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, and indeed Australia, desperately protecting the fossil fuel industry against a growing push for action. And, you know, the small number of Pacific negotiators, Pacific delegates who got to Glasgow were outnumbered. It's estimated about 12 to 1 by lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry. And yet, yet there's no doubt that the island states of the Pacific are on the front line of the climate crisis. Very much so. And, and for that reason, Pacific Island diplomats have been very influential in the negotiations over many years. They haven't succeeded um, because in many ways... Um, COP26 is a disaster in terms of addressing the core issue of keeping emissions below 1.5. And the catchphrase from the Pacific has been 1.5 to stay alive, that to, to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels is, is a matter not only for the Pacific, but for all of humanity. And Glasgow has, has you know, not succeeded in any way in keeping us on a pathway to 1.5 degrees. We're already above one degree. 
and the respected uh, climate analyst from uh, Climate Action Tracker, very you know uh, important coalition of groups monitoring the crunching the numbers, found that we're on a pathway to 2.4 degrees, which is a disaster for humanity. But um, uh, the Pacific, nonetheless, uh, used the opportunity to advance a number of core agendas um, around finance, around what's called loss and damage, around the need for focus on adaptation and so on, um, and uh, uh, tried through David and Goliath techniques to, um, to advance their agenda. And what happened to those issues? Well, it's sort of one step forward, one step backwards, two steps sideways. Um, the central failure of, of these Glasgow negotiations is that the core deal in Paris was that every five years countries would ratchet up their ambition to reduce emissions. Uh, countries have voluntary pledges called NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. These are the sort of targets that they set to reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases. And the idea was that we'll start off slow and then every five years we'll ratchet up the ambition uh, to reduce to even greater targets. Now, as people will know, Australia has refused to increase its 2030 target, even though it's obliged under the Paris deal to do so. And that's why Australia is so on the nose internationally. Um, not only uh, didn't they have a good target, they didn't even have a target to increase its ambition. A second central pillar of the Paris deal, and this is one that's very important to Pacific states, is around what's called climate finance. Most developing countries, not the big ones like China and India, but certainly all of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, all of the small island developing states in the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, the Caribbean, throughout Latin America and so on, need resources to make the transition to low-carbon economy. They need finance, they need technical assistance, they need capacity building. And of, of these NDCs, these uh, pledges that are put forward uh, to the Paris process, 136 countries in the world say they need climate finance or technical assistance and so on to make the transition. So a rich country like Australia has got resources to do all the things we need to do. We're not doing them, but we've got the, the resources to do it. But many developing countries don't. And the rich countries, the OECD countries, pledged in Paris that they would provide 100 billion US dollars a year by 2020 from public and private funds to meet that challenge, to help finance that transition. And they didn't do it. Um, it was clear last year the figures aren't still finalised because the money's still flowing through, but they're only at about $80 billion roughly a year, not $100 billion, as they promised. And it's a real problem that, you know, the deal was struck in Paris that big countries like China and India and so on said, well, we'll come on board and set targets uh, for emissions reduction if you meet your obligations. And they haven't done it. And for small island developing states, this is a, a real problem um, simply because they need extra resources to make the leap that all of us need to make. And uh, it looks like uh, basically they're going to kick the finance issue down the can, uh, down the road till till 2023. But 
Glasgow was supposed to set a new target for finance for 2025. And, you know, already the United Nations Environment Program is estimating that um, there's a need, particularly for adaptation funding to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change, that could be up to 300 billion a year, not 100, but 300 billion a year um, in coming years. So this is another central failure of the global the climate negotiations, the failure of wealthy countries to stump up the resources. Can you explain to me, Nick, how small, low-lying Pacific islands can can adapt to rising sea levels? Well, there are some things you can't adapt to. Um, you know, this is a spectrum. If you think about it, the resources to reduce emissions is at the heart of, of what we need to do bringing down global temperatures through emissions reductions. But given that's going to take time and given that massive change to the ecosphere is already locked in by what we've done over the last century or more and what industrialised countries particularly have done um, historically means that you have to adapt. Now, people have adapted over time. You know, the Dutch built dikes to stop sea level rise. People live in the desert in Las Vegas and... They air-condition their buildings to survive in the 40-degree heat of the Nevada desert so people adapt to the natural environment. The problem is that the world can't adapt to these changes. And the third element of this is what's called loss and damage. It's not just about adapting for the future. It's dealing with the loss and the damage that we're experiencing um, now. And for 20 years right through this process... Pacific Island states, like other smaller developing countries, least developed countries, have been arguing not just for adaptation finance, but loss and damage reparations to deal with the damage that's already been caused. And I'll give you one example. Cyclone Winston uh, is a a tropical cyclone, Category 5 cyclone, that hit Fiji in 2015. Just a bit like Cyclone Pam that hit Vanuatu just previously, or Cyclone Ewan that hit Samoa. You know, these tropical cyclones cause enormous damage. And Cyclone Winston, when it hit Fiji, cost $2 billion Fijian dollars. It's about a $1.3 billion Australian dollars from the cyclone. Now, when you think about the bushfires that ravaged Australia over the summer of 2019-2020, there are still people living in caravans from the, the, the bushfires in Australia. There's still people with mental trauma. There's still houses that need rebuilding. There's still communities that have been devastated by the bushfires, and we're a rich, rich capitalist country. For a developing nation like Fiji to have $2 billion worth of public assets, hospitals, schools, housing, natural environments devastated by a cyclone, knowing that it's going to happen again in coming years, not into 2030 or 2050, but in the next few years, there's a call for loss and damage action. Now, OECD countries have furiously resisted any liability for loss and damage. And the one good thing that came out of Scotland, and as a McClellan, can I say this proudly, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of Scotland, pledged a fund for loss and damage. It's the first time that a wealthy country has said, yes, not only we recognise that loss and damage is a problem, but we'll put some money on the table. And she pledged uh, a million pounds and then later doubled this to two million pounds. Now, as I say, that's a drop in the bucket. In reality, $2 billion 
was in one cyclone in Fiji on loss and damage. Uh, so the two million is symbolic. But what a symbol. It's Scotland's pride. They've said, we're not waiting for Boris Johnson to get off his ass. The United States has contributed zero on loss and damage. The European Union has contributed zero on loss and damage. Um, Scotland's symbol at Glasgow, even because Scotland is not a party to the Paris Accord because it's colonised by England, can I say, they said this is important. And so the work that Pacific negotiators have been doing on loss and damage, on what's called the Santiago process to get loss and damage onto the agenda, is the first crack in the wall. But too little, too late. And uh, this is the problem, that many agenda items that the Pacific is advancing have made progress, but at incredible cost, delay, and so on. Another one is around oceans. The Pacific Island countries, together with Caribbean and Indian Ocean counterparts, what are called the small island developing states, have been saying you have to make the nexus between the oceans and climate change. And it's not rocket science. Sea level rise is one of the biggest issues around the globe related to the warming of the oceans. The warming of the oceans affects marine ecologies, you know, damages reefs, as we know, with the bleaching of the a barrier reef. Uh, it affects fisheries, which are the lifeblood of nutrition for many island states. It's very much there. And the, the acidification of the oceans and what that's going to mean for fisheries, for marine life, for biodiversity, is a, a central global challenge in this whole process. So until now, we haven't had the oceans issue addressed within the climate change. You know, some countries say, oh, it's a separate issue. And the Pacific and other small island states have been fighting really hard to say, no, 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 this is, this is the, the same issue. And they fought to get the ocean's climate nexus integrated into these negotiations and ideally to set up a work program so that it has to be addressed at every COP. And countries that are signatories to the Paris Agreement have to come along every year and say, this is what we're doing to address the climate oceans nexus. Um, and for large ocean states like the Pacific, this is, uh, is really crucial. We're talking about these conferences where the leaders and the administrators talk to each other and round about each other. You, until the pandemic, were a regular visitor to the Pacific and will continue once this is over. What are the local people telling you rather than the leaders? There's enormous action at community level and at church level across the Pacific around this question. And people who are interested, I, I just uh, did a series of interviews with uh, civil society, community, women's groups and so on, people at COP um, in Glasgow uh, fighting the fight and people still campaigning uh, in the, the Pacific around this. Um, it's published in Inside Story. Uh, if you go to the website Inside Story and look for uh, uh, um, um, the story there uh, where I interview a number of people. One was a young woman, young Samoan woman named Brianna Fruin as a, a, a member of a group called the Pacific Climate Warriors. Um, she was uh, speaking at the opening ceremony in Glasgow and Brianna Fruin is, is a, a really, uh, you know, young woman, 23 years old, got involved in the climate group in, in Samoa uh, at age 11 
and uh, and speaking out. And it was interesting talking to her, and, and as you can read in this this interview, uh, because she talked about how Pacific youth differ in some ways from youth from what she called the global north, from rich, wealthier countries uh, that she'd met in her campaigning, because she said that many young people in the West, in the rich countries, feel betrayed by their elders. And certainly many young Australians have got plenty to feel betrayed about when you look at what is happening with our leaders. But she said, in contrast, that many Pacific Island young people are very proud of their elders simply because for the last uh, 30 years, ever since the adoption of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Pacific Island leaders have been at the forefront of climate diplomacy. And when you think about former leaders like Anoti Tong of Kiribati, uh, Aneli Sopoanga of, uh, of uh, Tuvalu, the late um, Tony de Brum of the Marshall Islands, these are countries that have been fighting the fight for three decades or more to get more urgent action. And that continues today. You know, the Marshall Islands and Solomon Islands uh, over the last year have been fighting within the International Maritime Organization to get targets to reduce emissions from shipping. And uh, the use of diesel bunker fuels in, in international shipping is a major source of emissions. It's not just power stations that generate uh, greenhouse gases, but international shipping is you know, a real source. Transport is a real source of emissions. And so it's Marshall Islands, it's Solomon Islands, it's other tiny countries who are reliant on global shipping for everything, <laughs> as well as global airlines, recognising that you still need to reduce emissions from these key transport sectors. And so they're very active as climate diplomats. And so Pacific young people that I've spoken to are actually quite proud of their elders. And you see, in contrast, Greta Thunberg and many uh, uh, people from Europe, from Australia, from America, who are horrified by the betrayal of their elders um, as to what it's going to mean for future generations. So I think Indigenous peoples have always been at the forefront of resistance, have been at the forefront of the extractivism that capitalism brings to mining oil, gas, fossil fuel extraction and so on, on Indigenous land. They're at the forefront of many of the problems and they've been at the forefront of the resistance. And that's, I think, an interesting comment from, from Brianna that, that she says, we stand on the shoulders of giants, like Tony de Brum, who key Marshall Islands negotiator, um, who passed away. Are also young men involved? Oh, yeah. Look, this is, you know, a, a new generation of Pacific Islanders have seen the possibilities. They're very active locally, campaigning against their own governments. You know, let's not idealise Pacific governments. There's a lot to do at home about, you know, the transition, about helping the most vulnerable within the community and things like that. So you've got uh, groups like 350.org, the Pacific Climate Warriors, PICAN, the Pacific Islands Climate Action Network. There are regional networks of young people who, through their church, their women's group, their youth groups and so on, are campaigning to mobilise the community around very concrete issues on housing and welfare, particularly agriculture and the impact on fisheries and reef ecologies and so on. There's a lot happening at the community level and you see some of those best and brightest um, campaigning alongside the, the key government negotiators at these meetings. It's one of the positives. 
you know, there aren't that many climate deniers in the Pacific, can I tell you? And when you look at the Craig Kellys and the Clive Palmers and the Scott Morrisons and the Peter Duttons and so on, uh, who are actively resisting this push, you can understand why people in the Pacific are so angry at Australia, who's, you know, we're the largest member of the uh, Pacific Islands Forum, the main regional intergovernmental agency, and yet the the anger and scorn towards Australia's climate policies can't be underestimated uh, when you talk to people from the Pacific. I could imagine, too, the anger when Australian leaders say, we are part of the Pacific family. Look, I, I interviewed Reverend James Bugwan, who's a Fijian uh, preacher. He's the General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, which is the main ecumenical church organisation that covers the whole of the Pacific Islands. And the PCC is a very important thing because uh, even more so than governments, you know, religious denominations, particularly Christian churches, reach down to every town, every village, every tribe in the Pacific. It's a, you know, Pacific Islanders by and large are much more active churchgoers than your average Australian. Um, there's a small Hindu community, small Muslim community in the Pacific, but by and large people are, are affiliated to, to Christian denominations. And he heard Scott Morrison, who proudly proclaims himself a Christian and, and a member of the Pacific Vuvale. It's a Fijian word that means family. You know, Morrison's proud of, of showing off both his Christianity and his commitment to what he calls the Pacific family. He also talked about giving money to our backyard, which is the sort of racist terminology that, that drives people in the Pacific stir-crazy. It's this notion that Australia is the centre of the world and all the neighbouring countries are our backyard. Those are words that our Prime Minister used, and that wins little support in the region, can I say. But Reverend Bhagwan was striking as a church leader. He said, and I, I'm quoting, I'm very concerned about the way Australia throws around the word vuvale, this word family, as if they're part of the Pacific family. They're not honouring the meaning of that word, which talks about unity, working together for the common good, and caring for the common household. And he said people need to walk the talk of their faith, particularly for those leaders who proclaim to be part of the Christian faith. They need moral courage as well as political courage. And I think we know who he's talking about there. I've been reporting on the Pacific Islands for, for a long time and for many, many years. As, as we know, the climate negotiations have been going on for three decades. I went to my first climate meeting in the Pacific in 1988, so it's been a while. And for a long time, people were reluctant to criticise Australia. Um, at Pacific Island Forum meetings publicly behind the you know, closed doors and off the record, leaders would always express concern about the cap capture of the Australian government by the mining industry. But for many years, they, were, they wouldn't put Australia on the spot publicly. That's all gone. That's gone. And one of the things that, that was striking this year was that a, a new group's been created called the Pacific Elders' Voice, the Pacific elders are retired politicians who have the freedom to speak out, you know, a bit like Kevin Rudd and Paul Keating and Malcolm Turnbull are happy to put the boots into the Morrison government over various policy issues. And uh, you wish they'd done it when they were in office, but nonetheless, they're speaking out on some issues nowadays. Um, so you see Pacific leaders who are no longer in public office much more publicly critical of Australia and so this Pacific Elders Voice group as a new lobby group uh, being created around the Glasgow talks includes uh, Note Tong of Kiribati, uh, 
and Eli Sopoanga of Tuvalu, Dr. Hilda Heine of the Marshall Islands, uh, the first woman leader of the Marshall Islands, uh, the former Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Dame Meg Taylor of Papua New Guinea. These are all leaders who have standing both regionally and internationally because of the work they've done around climate change. As I say, if people go to my story, uh, inside story uh, uh, about the, the COP negotiations, these people went on the record um, in the last week to bag Australia. Dr Hilda Heine, for example, from the Marshall Islands, was asked about Australia's net zero by 2050 policy. Also, the refusal to announce a new emissions target for 2030, not just this fake net zero argument, which is pretty meaningless, but what are they going to do in the next few years, uh, which is the time frame for action that we need, not 2050, but now. And Hilda Heine said on the record, once again, Prime Minister Morrison has failed to deliver anything new. There is very little detail and none of the clear action on fossil fuels required to keep global warming at 1.5. Prime Minister Morrison has failed to deliver anything new. Very little detail, none of the clear action required. And um, at a time that Scott Morrison's under criticism for the French president for being a liar, from the US president for being clumsy, others have been very outspoken about the failure of Australia's climate diplomacy at the moment. You know, Anote Tong said, we've hoped for far much, for far more from our Pacific neighbour and the rest of the world hoped for more. This great nation, Australia, is becoming more and more isolated due to the government's lack of action and ambition on climate change. You know, even where Australia made gestures like announcing uh, 500 million globally for new climate finance, drop in the bucket compared to what's needed, only 200 million goes to the Pacific, spread over... 16 foreign island countries over five years. It's, it's, it's nothing compared to what we should be doing. It's really interesting to see how many diplomats and, and former leaders went on the record to critique the, even this gesture. Tommy Romingasau of Palau, former president of Palau, said Prime Minister Morrison can't buy himself out of much greater responsibility for urgent and rapid action to reduce emissions at home and to stop the export of coal. Samoa's UN ambassador, ambassador of the United Nations, uh, in an interview said, I think it's important to emphasize that we're looking for new money, not money that you shift from one pocket to the other, because that really doesn't help us. So he's making the point that Australia's climate finance, and the Australian government's made a big splash about giving money for climate finance, that's coming out of the aid budget. And he said on the record, if you put more money into climate finance, but that comes out of aid to countries that has funded basic infrastructure or social sectors like education, health, then it's a no-win situation for us. If Australia's only got a limited aid budget and it just shifts money from, say, the health budget around the pandemic to a climate action budget, there's no new resources coming into this process. And unlike some countries that are looking at innovative sources of finance, Australia's just taking money out of the aid budget and rebadging it to say it's climate action money at a time when there's a long call for new and additional resources, not simply reshuffling buckets of money within the existing budget. You know, the palpable anger that you, you see uh, from Pacific uh, countries is, is more and more sharp.
one important player we haven't mentioned in relation to climate change over the last couple of weeks is China. Yeah, look, this is a, a, a really important issue because, um, you know, Australia, although it's a key player in the Pacific and a key partner in the Pacific Islands Forum, is not the big game. I mean, the big game is the United States, China, the European Union, uh, followed by other countries that are major uh, emitters of greenhouse gases. You know, the one symbolic uh, gesture that was significant, but nowhere near enough, at uh, Glasgow was a declaration by the United States and China to work together on climate issues. They're re-establishing a climate uh, working group that existed under the Obama administration, was ditched by Trump. The great danger, of course, is that um, uh, this uh, cooperative process will be abandoned uh, in 2024 if the Biden administration lose office. And indeed, uh, that may come sooner with the midterm elections in November 2022 in the United States and the likelihood that the Republicans are going to do a damage to the Biden administration. Time will tell. But it's vitally important that China and the United States, as the two largest emitters, do more, um, simply because of the enormous amount of emissions that they put out. And China's in a paradox. Its, it's uh, net zero target is for 2060, uh, rather than 2050. Uh, it's one of the largest users of coal, including Australian coal in the world. At the same time, China is the largest producer of renewable technologies um, and has made massive shifts internally to uh, uh, address this question. The 2022 is going to see the next uh, uh, Chinese plenum for a five-year plan, uh, an important moment within the Chinese state bureaucracy uh, on these questions. So uh, there's a whole lot, and Pacific countries have been actively lobbying uh, the Chinese just as much as the Americans and the, the European Union and other major emitters to take action uh, to keep 1.5 alive. And, you know, one of the problems is that the pledges made at Glasgow are nowhere near enough to limit a warming below 1.5. And the science is telling us we need to go way below one degree. Um, you know, there are enormous changes in the pipeline, cyclones, fires, uh, ocean acidification and other disasters, not just for the Pacific, though, but for the whole of humanity. And this is the paradox. You know, people talk of the Pacific being on the front line, but in many ways, indigenous peoples around the world, poorer communities around the world in rich countries are on the front line. And you only have to see in Australia the inequity of response. Wealthy people can afford to make the ad adaptive changes by paying for new solar panels, glazing their house for the, the heat, the hot summers that are coming and things like that. Whereas poorer communities, indigenous people in Australia, are, are facing the burden. You go to the Torres Strait and see rising sea levels on Sabai and other um, Torres Strait islands to know that uh, there's a disproportionate effect. And that's been the heart of the COP process, the UN Framework Convention. You know, we have a common but differentiated responsibility. It's common because all of humanity is affected, but it's got to be differentiated because small island states, least developed countries, don't contribute to the emissions that are literally destroying the planet and putting humanity at grave risk. Um, it's the wealthy industrialised nations, particularly capitalist nations of the OECD, that have a historic responsibility for emissions 
and therefore a historic obligation to act. And that's been the battle for the last 30 years, ever since 1992, when the UN Framework Convention was first signed up. And rich countries always want to point the finger at China and say, you know, China's not doing enough. And as a global emitter, China's central to the solution to this question, and China shouldn't be let off the hook on climate action. But the historic responsibility of the capitalist nations whose economic accumulation has come through the exploitation and use of fossil fuels, that differentiated responsibility is still there. And the failure of Glasgow is that when it comes to climate finance, when it comes to action on loss and damage, when it comes to 2030 targets, it's the US, it's the European Union, and it's Australia that have failed their global duty. And they'll do it all again. We'll be back next year. You know, the cops, to a certain extent, are theatre. The struggle is on the ground. The struggle is on the ground in the Pacific around adapting villages to rising sea levels. The struggle is on the ground in Australia with young people having the courage to shut down coal mines. The struggle is around our next elections to get both our major political parties to adopt policies that deal with the reality that we are in a climate emergency and none of the potential victors, Labor or Liberal, that are going to win the next federal election have policies that anywhere near address the emergency that we face. The challenge is on the ground with Indigenous Native Americans, First Nations peoples fighting against the pipelines running from Canada into the United States. The challenge is the gas industry and the huge fraud that's being promoted by Angus Taylor and others that gas is the solution to the climate emergency. It's resisting the nuclear push, the dream that nuclear reactors will save us, once again diverting uh, attention from the, the massive funding we need for renewable technologies, the nuclear threat too for Aboriginal people, once again that uh, the deserts of South Australia will be a nuclear waste dump. You know, we're moving to the anniversary next year of the, the British nuclear test, 1952 to 2022's the anniversary of the Montebello test, followed by tests in the deserts of South Australia. We haven't cleaned up the nuclear mess from the 1950s, and people are now talking about a nuclear industry in Australia. It's crazy. There's a lot to do. That's where um, you know young people and old are stepping up to to say that despite the blah 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 of of, of these talks, um, we are on a pathway to disaster, and it's time for action. Thank you, Jan. As always, Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of 
Collins Mizwai. Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone. As part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Recently, the elite of the U.S. administration, past and present, attended the funeral service of former Secretary of State Colin Powell with a over 30 years service in the U.S. military. On the program last week, academic Inoy Kempmark spoke about the impact of Powell on the people of Vietnam and also Iraq. And today, peace and anti-war activist Kathy Kelly with her response to his death. Kathy, you and your friends in both Voices in the Wilderness and the Iraq Peace Team experienced with the Iraqi people the impact of Colin Powell on their lives. Well, you know, I have such a keen memory of being in Baghdad and we, you know, we're still not certain that war was inevitable. In fact, it seems it could be avoidable if the weapons inspectors could show without any doubts that Iraq didn't possess weapons of mass destruction. And then Colin Powell appeared before the United Nations General Assembly and we listened to his talk on a, a, a shortwave radio and I remember really blushing up to my roots in my scalp thinking, oh my gosh, you know, the last time I was in the United States, I ran all over the country saying, you know, there wasn't evidence that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And now Colin Powell is presenting the evidence. And he had 39 different instances that he said gave undeniable proof that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Well, I still don't think that would have warranted the United States bludgeoning and uh, murdering so many Iraqi civilians, uh, either through the economic sanctions or the shock and awe bombing or the aftermath of that. But as it turned out, I remember then going back to the United States uh, after the shock and awe bombing had ended, and I suppose it was about a month further into the U.S. occupation. And I read in the New York Review of Books an article that showed without doubt that every single one of the instances Colin Powell had cited were not found. They didn't exist. Uh, the factory producing centrifuge machines didn't exist. The cars that were supposedly transporting uh, weapons across the country, those didn't exist. It was just all fabricated and yet what did exist was a wrecked country. And I think that Colin Powell helped to create the wreckage and the devastation that Iraqis suffered through. And, um, you know, they, I don't think he was ever held accountable for that. And instead, you know, we're told, here's someone to emulate. Was it ever disclosed who actually wrote that speech? Well, apparently, uh, now this is maybe more uh, anecdote, uh, but he saw the speech he was to give 
and he realized that it was specious information and, and, and threw it and, and, and realized that this was his reputation riding on uh, something that could be disproven in the future, that there wasn't backup for. And apparently it was intelligence agents who had come up with this. The weapons inspectors under Scott Ritter had looked very, very hard for weapons of mass destruction, couldn't find them. The International Atomic Energy Association was about to come out within about a week to two weeks with their conclusion after going through every possible place where weapons might have been stored or developed, and they were going to say, no, Iraq does not have these weapons of mass destruction. So I think that people created the the talk for Colin Powell because the United States had already decided it was going to war against Iraq, and they needed to pull the U.K. in on it, and they needed to um, kind of preempt the International Atomic Energy Association's declaration. And Colin Powell, instead of standing up to them and saying, I won't be bullied into giving this talk, this is unprincipled, he um, went ahead and gave that talk. He was also involved in the first Iraq war, wasn't he? Uh, Yes, Colin Powell was one of those who was asked about the casualties, the numbers of people that had been killed. And he said that um, that wasn't a body count he was terribly interested in. Yeah, he was definitely a a militarist. Did he have uh, interests of non-governmental organizations that he wanted to support? In mind, um, I don't know. I know that he had a, a, an outfit called the Little Red Wagon, and uh, many military contractors contributed sums of money to that. And um, it, it was difficult. I, I, Hans von Spoenig, in fact, had encouraged me to try to follow where did that money go in this group he had founded called the Little Red Wagon. And it, it was um, I, I gave up on the project. It, it didn't seem it was very possible to figure that out. As you've pointed out, he was only one of many who've transferred from the military to politics. And even in Australia, that's not an unusual thing. What's the latest person to have done that? Well, it's very troubling to me that General Lloyd Austin, who was on the board of um, directors for Raytheon and is now the um, Secretary of Defense, has presided over a time when the Biden administration now is giving Raytheon a huge contract to supply Saudi Arabia with more weaponry. That that revolving door seems to be never-ending. And also, um, the Pentagon came out with a statement, an appalling statement, saying that nothing was done wrong when 10 people in the Ahmadi family were slaughtered by a drone attack. It was an attack that got everything wrong in terms of intelligence, and seven children were killed, three of them little toddlers. And General Lloyd Austin endorsed this report and agreed nothing was done wrong and there shouldn't be any disciplinary action, which I think is endorsing reckless murder. It's not the first time. Oh, no. The only thing unusual about the attack on the Ahmadi family is that there was international coverage. But that's actually been the norm, that the drone attacks 
have faulty intelligence and people who are completely innocent are assassinated, their bodies are sliced apart by these ghastly weapons. We haven't heard a lot about Yemen lately. What are your friends telling you? I think that the United States is still helping the Saudis have the upper hand in terms of an air war that's bludgeoning people in Yemen. Uh, the contest for Marib, the province, which if it goes to the Houthis, will, they say, decide the war, I think is something that has uh, frightened the Saudis in a sense. And so they're trying uh, to get an upper hand through aerial strikes and get the United States to support them in doing so and also to continue giving them cover for this completely illegal and immoral war at the United Nations. Meanwhile, Yemenis are still facing tormenting hunger and uh, the possibility of famine. And it's it's something that is, is so difficult to address because aid agencies aren't able to get to increasingly to people who are displaced within war zones. Do we see the U.S. hand behind the situation in Somalia at the moment? You know, I guess what I could say is that the United States has AfricaCom, the Africa Command, and has been unaccountable for the actions of special operations teams of CIA agency teams. Um, It's very difficult for people in the United States to to know anything about what the hand of the United States is within Somalia. As the U.S. tries to drag itself out of the Middle East, it would appear to most thinking people that the target now is China. What can be done to delay or stop that? Well, you know, this is the Armistice Week. Well, this is the week when Armistice Day will be celebrated on November 11th in 1918 at the end of World War I. Some of the most moving footage of soldiers shows them just silently absorbing the reality that the war had finally ended. They didn't clap, they didn't cheer, they just sank down onto the ground and leaned against their packs. And I think one of the things we need to do is slow down. You know, the United States has just concluded its troop presence in Afghanistan, but it's not taking a moment to assess, to evaluate, to ask what did that accomplish, what's the effect of the drone warfare. Instead, they're just racing to get more money for more weapons to be in a military engagement with China, which the top military leaders have said could very well be using such sophisticated high-tech weaponry that the only way the United States could really get the better of China would be to use a nuclear weapon. And they also, Admiral Charles Richards has said that the language should be changed to say there's not a possibility of a nuclear use on the part of the United States. It's a probability in the event of a military engagement with China. So this should be startling and alarming to people. And it's, it's language that has to be exposed. And also the, the manipulation of information by the Pentagon in building up to China as a huge military threat to the United States has to be exposed. And um, I mean, I, it, it's certainly 
was telling to me that Professor Noam Chomsky said if the United States doesn't cooperate with China to solve problems with the pandemic, with climate catastrophe and nuclear weapons, we're finished. He said game over. So what can be done? It's very, very difficult because the United States media is extremely cooperative in building up uh, the presentation of China as a menacing threat, as a very authoritarian government. Never do they talk about the Saudis as an authoritarian, dangerous government which violates human rights of people. But we're to be very, very afraid of China. And so my hope is that um, academic communities, faith-based communities, certainly all of the peace movement communities will resist vigorously the buildup toward um, a Cold War and a possible hot war with China. We're all aware of the consequences for people in many countries of the world of the United States wars, but what do those, the spending by the military-industrial complex, what do you believe it means for the people of America? Well, it has meant that we're not able to meet our infrastructure needs. We've got a crumbling infrastructure across the country. We haven't been able to meet health care needs. The United States is far beyond other countries when it comes to assisting new mothers and uh, family leave during pregnancies or uh, assisting uh, newborns so that we don't have such high rates of infant mortality. We have um, homelessness and hunger and rates of poverty all across the United States that can't be addressed until the United States addresses the Pentagon scooping up so many of the resources year after year after year. We also, of course, have a prison industrial complex in this country and problems with new migrants being treated abominably. So there, there, there's plenty of work to do within the United States, but we can't begin to address these problems. And, and I haven't even started on climate catastrophe problems. We can't address those problems until we address dismantling the military budget. And what are your thoughts now on action on climate change? We've had the meeting in Glasgow. What are your thoughts now? Well, I'm very impressed by the Sunrise Movement in the United States. These are young people who are so frustrated that they are resorting to much more vigorous, uh, somewhat dangerous actions, um, dangerous to their own health. A number of them took on a water-only hunger strike and they uh, fasted until a couple of them had actually landed in emergency rooms, 10 and 12 day fasts. They went to Joe Manchin's wharf where his houseboat is parked and they they stood in front of his car and he kept on driving. It looked like he might actually mow them down if they didn't move. And, and they shouted at the top of their lungs, we want to live. So, so I think the younger generation is aware of the perils that they face because of climate catastrophe. And I think that many of them are um, sharpening their organizing skills, trying to grow their movement, and speaking easily to other young people in the um, boycott, divest, and sanctions movement, 
and in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm hoping that young people will be able to turn the tide and that older people will start to follow these young ones in their protest and in their indignation. How is COVID going in the United States, particularly in your area? Well, I think we're seeing that the areas where there's the strongest resistance to vaccination, which I would say are in the south of the United States, in uh, some of the, um, like, say, North Dakota, South Dakota, some of the Northern Plains areas, that's where we're finding that there is a resurgence of COVID. Uh, in, where I am, the uh, Chicago authorities have mandated that uh, any of the Chicago municipality jobs must only now employ people who have been vaccinated. There is mandate. And uh, we're seeing that the rates of people hospitalized and the numbers of people dying has gone down. It's not going up. So there, there are some super spreader events that have happened and you see masses of people gathered without wearing masks. Uh, certainly without any social distancing. And then with the holidays coming up, they're predicting that there could be another uptick in the spread of COVID. What's keeping you and your friends occupied at the moment in the world affairs? Well, I'd say that every day I am pretty well immersed in messages and letters coming from people in Afghanistan, many of them young people or young Afghans who fled to Pakistan, and they, they need help. They need every kind of help. They want, in some cases, to get assistance with visas, to go to Australia, to Portugal, to the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada. But there, there's not a, a, a wide opening for people to enter. And it, it actually, I think governments make it so hard for people to be good. There are many people who are good people who would like to help, but it's it's not easy. Uh, in fact, you can't even easily get money into people's families through Western Union, either in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, particularly if people have crossed into Pakistan without the legal papers. So um, those problems, I think, must be addressed. We can't turn away, nor can we turn away from the Ahmadi family. I, I was just on a call today <clears throat> with people across the United States trying to plan ways to continue to focus attention on that family, uh, 10 of whose members were killed and who uh, have, as of now, still not been given compensation or uh, some way of passage to a safer country. So on the 29th, I'm sorry, the 27th of November, we want to have actions outside of every base that's operating weaponized drones or training people to operate those drones. And the theme will be don't look away. And we'll show the pictures of the faces of the beautiful members of the Ahmadi family who were killed on that day. And we'll try to help people recognize that the wider context we have to look at is that which was shown to us by Daniel Hale, the whistleblower who said, look, 90% of the time in a five-month period, the people that were attacked were innocent civilians in, in drone attacks. What contact do you have now with the young people that you worked with in Kabul? Mm, it's mainly through social media. You know, they still have electricity and 
many are still able to send Facebook messages. Two have been, uh, one was badly tortured, another was held for nine hours and beaten. Um, they're, they're all quite frightened, I would say. And we're trying to work out kind of a buddy system so that each individual or each particular family can be paired up with somebody in a far more secure situation who could seriously assist in the process of applying for visas or if somebody has uh, made it to another country to help them get situated as best we can help in that other country. So uh, if, if you know of anybody in your area who might want to help with that, we would welcome them. There are some wonderful Australians who are already working so hard, particularly people dedicated to permaculture who had already taught and mentored many young people in the Afghan Peace Volunteer community for, uh, learning how to, about, in, in learning how to practice permaculture. Have they stayed in Kabul or have they gone back home? Well, most have uh, stayed in Kabul. Some have gone. One just went to Iran yesterday. Others, uh, there are about uh, 11 in Pakistan. And uh, a few, I think, will get to Germany in coming weeks. And one is already there. So it, there's there's a bit of a diaspora that we could speak of. Four people just landed in Canada, a family of four. What about the young women? Well, I would say that it's disproportionate in terms of how much we've been able to assist the young men and the young women, and I feel very badly about that. Some of the young women don't have the same access to Internet or their families don't allow them uh, freedom of movement and so they have a much harder time uh, reaching out to Westerners. And uh, while some of them might like to flee, a, a group of four young men whom I know were able to cross over the mountains, uh, a woman would never have been able to join them in that kind of travel. So I, I think that it, the women are going to face uh, a rollback of their possibilities in life as the Taliban predominate in Kabul and in the areas where poverty is on the rise, where people are hungry and they don't have food and they're cold and they don't have fuel, you know, some of the solutions, are, they're not good solutions. They involve child marriages and enforced engagements. And, and this, of course, affects young women because they don't have a choice about where they're going in their lives. And it's a way to bring some money into the household, but it's it's a very, very harsh existence for young women when that happens. And is the West completely turning its back on Afghanistan? I'm thinking about sanctions of some sort to stop aid getting into Afghanistan. Well, I think there should be an unfreeze Afghanistan movement. This is no time to be imposing economic warfare on top of the woes that Afghans are already experiencing. And if the West thinks that it's going to isolate the Taliban uh, financially by freezing Afghanistan's assets so that healthcare workers and teachers aren't paid, I think that's, that's wrongful. I think that, in fact, you know, Afghanistan is a failed narco state, but they still have opium sales and the Taliban can control the revenues from that, and they can use that for their purposes. The Taliban can also control 
the uh, taxes that every vehicle has to pay as it crosses a border. And there are many, many trucks and commerce that cross borders, and they, they have to pay to cross those borders, and the Taliban controls that revenue. So I think that the people being hurt by the economic measures that have frozen Afghanistan's uh, central bank assets are the ordinary people. 75% of Afghanistan's population are women and children, and they are facing a, a very, very cold winter without fuel, without warmth, and they're facing terrible hunger without food. Finally, Kathy, what will be happening on November the 11th? Well, I'm very pleased to say that Veterans for Peace organizations across the country are trying to reclaim November 11th as Armistice Day and reject the idea that it should be a Veterans Day to celebrate United States military uh, wars and military persecution of other people. You know, Armistice Day on November 11th at the end of World War One was a time when many people, having survived an industrialized slaughter, the uh, war-caused ravages of the flu that claimed many more lives, and the uh, shell shock that occurred for so many people at the fronts where they emerged from those trenches covered with lice and incurable sores, that was a hideous time, and, and so many, many people said, we don't ever want this to happen again. And yet those who profit from war wasted no time replenishing the supply of armaments and hastening on toward another world war. So it's important to uphold the celebration on November 11th in 1918 when the weapons were finally laid down and people said we have an armistice a peace thank you kathy well thank you jen it's always a privilege to talk with you long time peace and anti-war activist kathy kelly you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio Stop the far right. Protest on Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument. Join the campaign against racism and fascism in Melbourne to protest the far right trying to march in our streets as part of a national day of anti-fascist action. Stand for social solidarity and let everyone know that Melbourne is an anti-fascist town. This is organised as a COVID-19 safe event. All participants are requested to come fully vaccinated and wearing masks. Stop the far-right protest, Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument, Melbourne. For more information, go to www.calf.melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And we continue the reviews of books relating to Palestine and Palestinians. A great gift for the festive season, if that's your thing, or for any member of your family and friends as a gift. This is a project of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, where members choose a book to review from a collection of recently released books. And today, the book is The Beauty of Your Face by Samar Mustafa, and the reviewer, Claudia Hiles. Begin, Claudia, with the title of the book, The Beauty of Your Face. What's the origin of that, and where does that fit into this book? 
The title is a line from a Bosnian folk song. It was a lullaby sung to the children of the protagonist of the book by their Bosnian grandmother. The, the woman who is the central character is Palestinian, but uh, she was born in America. Her parents fled Palestine before her birth. And she marries later in life a Bosnian, a very nice man that she, she's met through the, the mosque, in fact. But it's a real sort of uh, mixture of cultural background to have this uh, song sung to these little children in America <laughs> by a Bosnian lady. So how does that fit in with the book, her background? Well, perhaps, I haven't thought about this, Jan, but perhaps it's because she was never seen as a beauty, maybe, but maybe her beauty has been discovered later uh, and it's certainly revealed in her soul and I suppose as a happy person, maybe even her countenance changed. It's it's an interesting question. Um there were beautiful people in the book. Um, the mother, who was extremely difficult, the, the protagonist's mother, she was a beauty, but she was very, very difficult and ve- a very bitter and sad character. And the eldest sister, who really was responsible for the family's sadness and disappointment and fracturing, she was beautiful. She ran away with a with a boyfriend, an American boyfriend, as a teenager and wasn't discovered for decades when she she found a way back to the family but she was said to be beautiful but in fact the protagonist wasn't a beauty but I, I think it was revealed later in her character. So there's two interwoven stories in a sense isn't there there's a the displaced people from Palestine and there's there's the shooter who is himself a displaced person. How does that work out? Well, the shooter is very much... He's a very much more minor character than than the Palestinian family. Um, I think, you know, we know so much about these ghastly shootings in America. It's something that everybody's familiar with. And she lives in America, but we know all about them because we've been so horrified and, and we've had horrible things happen here too, of course. But I, I think he is a displaced person. You're right. The shooter, despite the fact that there's a bit of um, delving into his family background, his name is never revealed, which is a, rather an odd thing in a way. It doesn't matter, but it's it's unusual. It, it was obviously a very deliberate thing. But um, the school that he enters, pretending to be a tradesman, used to be a Benedictine monastery, and it was sold and bought by the Muslim community and was um, something that displeased the Christian, the so-called Christians who lived round about. They didn't want an Islamic school in their midst. But it's quite interesting, Afaf, the central character, the principal of the school, usually goes solitary prayer to the tiny little room like a cupboard that used to be the confessional in its Catholic history. And in a way, there's a lot of disappearance, not just displaced people, but disappearance and, and, and shape-changing in this context. The, the buildings even transform from, you know, once a Catholic monastery in now a Muslim girls' school. But 
to get back to the shooter, when he discovers the woman in this tiny room, he's already shot people, children and a teacher, he recognises the earlier identity of the room because he had a Catholic childhood, a lifetime before his current persona as, as a very, will you say, what did you call him, displaced? He's just become completely radicalised by online right-wing extremists, white nationalists in, in America. And in a way, that makes America seem almost as divided as as the Palestinian homeland of the, of the family of, of the story. Where is the father of the girls? Oh, he's there. And it wasn't a religious family at all. He was devastated by the loss of his elder teenage daughter. The whole family just suffered so badly. And he had a, a good job. I can't remember now what it was. But he had a, a good job. But he, he started to drink and he lost his job. But he found himself again by going to the mosque. He used to occasionally take the, the two remaining children to the mosque. But what he found and what Afas, the daughter, later found certainly didn't help either the mother or the son and brother. Well, the mother had abandoned it a long time ago, abandoned faith. Well, she'd lost her faith. She'd abandoned religion. And the boy wasn't interested at all. But he becomes a very devout Muslim and he dies in the faith. I think um, it's a while since I've read this book and sometimes, I don't know about you, the book in the top of my head is the one that I'm reading at the time, <laughs> um, which is a dreadful confession. But father dies, dies when Afaf takes him on the Hajj, the religious pilgrimage to Mecca, and he dies there, which is an extraordinary thing. But there's a, a ceremony to mark his death back in America. It's in Illinois, not far from Chicago. And the long-lost sister turns up. She hears somehow that her father has died and she, she arrives. And she meets her mother again. Her mother's really gone back to Palestine. Well, she goes back eventually. The meeting isn't a good one. It, it, it's just been too long and the mother's completely broken. And she's, she's not happy back in Palestine either. So it's a very sad family story. But the book isn't entirely grim, even despite a dreadful school shooting. There are glimmers of humour here and there. and It's quite a nice read. It's an easy read. Yet you've called it The Untold Suffering of Displaced People. Yes. And this is what so much of Palestinian story is about, isn't it? This is her first book, and you can see more coming. It's her first novel. She's had an, an award-winning collection of short stories, which apparently deals with similar transplanted lives. I'm sure she's working on something else. Yeah, I, I, I think she's got a, a great future. So is there any hope in this book for you? Yes, there's hope in the human spirit. One must have hope. I'm quite involved with APAN, I think, as you know, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. And I'm also very involved in, with uh, several refugee organisations here in Canberra. And I think, boy, 
I mean, I'm involved in other things too, but these two are hard. There are so many stumbling blocks and so many stones along the way of the road. It's a rocky road, but one must keep trying. And I've, I've reviewed a couple of other books for the APAN literary page, including Colin McCann's long-listed Apiragon. I'm really sad that he didn't win the Booker last year because it would have alerted so many people to the plight of Palestine because a lot of people just don't know. And it, it takes a strong, something really strong to wake you up with me. It was seeing a film on Four Corners in 2014 called Stone Cold Justice about these brave people who defend boys, practically always boys, in um, military court. There are organisations called Military Court Watch and they defend children who've been snatched from their beds at night. A, a lot of Palestinian mothers don't, uh, mothers of boys don't sleep because they're so frightened the Israeli Defence Force will come in and take their boys and they, they're taken to police stations where they have to sign an affidavit or a confession or something which is written in Hebrew which they don't read or understand and then they come shackled into court. It, it's a terrible thing but seeing that film really woke me up and then I went to Palestine on a study tour in 2015 organised by APAN and we met the, the husband and wife who run this wonderful organisation, Military Court Watch. And then they actually visited Australia a year or so later and spoke at various Palestinian events. But it wasn't until I read John Lyon's book, Balcony Over Jerusalem, that I realised that it was he who made the film. And his new book, uh, which I tried to buy yesterday, it's, it's out of print already, it's a very short book, again with Jerusalem in the title, is about what he sees is the crushing of freedom of speech by not being able to criticise Israel, especially in print. Because if you criticise Israel, according to a lot of people, you're being anti-Semitic, which is not the case at all. Getting back to a Epiragon, it was written by the a best-selling author, Irish author, who now lives in New York, called Colin McCann. And it's 95% it's true. And it's about two men who become friends through terrible grief. They belong to an organization whose tragic qualification for membership is the loss of a beloved child. And they both lost daughters. The Israeli man's daughter was 14 when she was killed by a suicide bomber in East Jerusalem. And 10 years later, the Arab man, Bassam's 10-year-old daughter, was shot in the back of the head with a rubber bullet by an Israeli border guard on a school day. as She, she left a sweet shop after buying a little candy bracelet for her sister. Now, these two men who have extremely different backgrounds the Palestinian spent seven years in jail after attempting an act of revenge on Israeli troops. The Israeli served in the army, of course, but they become friends and they travel the world, or they used to before COVID, um, trying to 
alert people to the terrible situation that there is that exists in Israel where Palestinians simply aren't free and they want to stop they want to prevent what they say is unbearable pain for others they want their stories they hope in the telling will stop other poor families being so stricken with grief anyway it's a fantastic book a Pyragon strange book in a way but wonderful when Colin McCann was invited to Israel well Palestine Israel in in a a compilation of a book. It was called Kingdom of Olives and Ash, Writers Confront the Occupation. So you can see who <laughs> who um, organised that. Occupation obviously means it was Palestinian introduced. But there were many contributors, world-famous writers, such as Colin Tabin and Geraldine Brooks. And McCann's story was called Two Stories Too Many, it was when he met these two men, Bassam Aramin, the Australian, Rami El-Hanan, the Palestinian. And he went back to New York, but he wanted to write more, and the Pyragon was the result. But I heard him interviewed, actually, on the it was on a Zoom session about 18 months ago from the Melbourne Jewish Book Week, and he was in conversation, and he told the interviewer that he'd been told... You think Ireland is complicated? You ought to come to the Middle East. And he certainly found that that was the case. You must be encouraged that there are a great number of books now about Palestine. Oh, yes, I'm certainly encouraged. And even, you know, non-fiction books that aren't actually political. I don't know whether you probably don't have time to listen to other radio, but on... um, Jonathan Green's program on the ABC, it's on Saturday morning, Um, it's about food and architecture and goodness knows what. Um, He interviewed about two years ago, and it's been repeated a couple of times, a Jewish writer, an American Jewish writer, woman called Adina Hoffman, who wrote a fascinating book called Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architects of a New City. And Till We Have Built Jerusalem is a line from William Blake's famous poem which has been set to music and is a a Protestant hymn. It starts, and did those feet in ancient time. Well, it's nothing to do with anything that William Blake might have thought, but it's about the, the three very, very different men who were responsible for building modern Jerusalem. And it's, it's really fantastic. And she's a very uh, even-handed, open-minded woman. Her earlier book was a bio- the first biography written of a Palestinian writer ever. So yes, it is. It is heartening, and we just need more. <laughs> we need to encourage all those Palestinians and others to put their words to paper. We do, and I might say that our little circle of reviewers for APAN. We select a book ourselves, or sometimes um, it's suggested we, we read something, and then we have to send it to one of the other. We started off as three, we're now four. One of the group peer reviews it, and then it is sent to Samar Sabawi, who you may know, a really fantastic writer, poet, dramatist, activist, Palestinian woman who her family 
uh, left Gaza. She was born outside Australia but came here and was educated in Melbourne. And she does a lot of work in Canada as well as here. Um, but she okays it from the Palestinian point of view. And it, it, we need that because just just in this, the beauty of, of your face, when I was thinking about disappearance, which I think is the theme that goes through the book, I said that Afaf, when she becomes religious and identifies as a Muslim woman, she takes to wearing the headscarf. And I said, in a way this could be a, seen as a kind of disappearance, a kind of shielding, uh, hiding, perhaps. Anyway, I thought, help, I don't know whether this is stepping too far, but somehow I thought it was okay, so that was right. But we do need to have that Palestinian approval. Great. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Nice to meet you, Jan. And I was speaking with Claudia Hiles, who was reviewing a book by Samar Mustafa called the Beauty of Your Face, and that's a book published by W.W. Norton Company. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.